0: All right, with that, we're gonna finish up this series. Again, if it's your very first Sunday here at Northlands, a special welcome to you. Uh, My name is Tyler. I'm a part of the Northlands family here, and we are glad that you are with us. Now, I have to say this disclaimer because if you're like me and this is your first Sunday, you're like, great. So I've missed four parts of this series. I'm on part five. Is this gonna be like reading a book and starting halfway through It is not. Rest assured, I believe that you'll have a lot of relevant things to take away from this message, but I would encourage you, go listen to the last several weeks that we've had. They've been very helpful to me. I don't know if you, Tom and I have been joking about this all week. As we're walking in these practices of Jesus, does it feel like you're exercising a demon of hurry out of your body? Uh, and I've just found that to be the case. Every time I get behind somebody who's moving slow and I try and match that slowness, I feel like the entire world's against me. Like they're now irritated with me as well, like I'm irritated with the person in front of me. Anybody else feeling that at all? No. Yeah, I think this is a good thing. This is why they call it a practice. We're practicing uh, something. Now, this series is to recognize that our culture, defo- it's a default to going faster, accumulating more, trying to fit more into your calendar, disregarding the fact that you only have 24 hours in a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. We wanna continually press the limits of those restraints. And our culture would not only tell us that this is a good thing, they'll sell us on how we can make it happen. It's continually offering a way that we can overextend our life. So this series for us has really been investigating the danger that comes when we violate the limitations that God puts on our life to protect us and to provide for us. And we find ourselves running on empty, as as Andrew depicted in our video, constantly just two steps behind our life, still living our life, but constantly behind. And we also wanna talk about how do we guard against a culture that is selling us on this idea that you can absolutely overextend your life. Now, why does any of that matter? Because Jesus offered a new way of living. Jesus said, I've come so that you can have a life and life to the full. And Jesus says, you know what the great obstacle of this, this kind of life is living in a culture that is the opposite of my kingdom. He, he came with a singular message, repent for my kingdom is at hand. The way in which you're living your life, the way in which culture would tell you to live your life, you're going to have to change that. You have to change the way you are doing life and the way that you do that is to take up my yoke, my rule of life, the way that I live my life. And so what we wanna look at is what Dallas Willard says, hurry, it is the great enemy of your spiritual life. The life that Jesus is promising, the full life of John 10.10. You wanna know the thing that will stop you from accessing that kind of life? It's going to be hurry rushing past, pushing past your limitations, violating those limitations that God has put in your life for a very good reason. If you do that and you embrace hurry, or hurry sickness as we talked about in week one, it will be a great enemy to your spiritual life. And I, I don't know if you remember, but in week one we did a, a hurry sickness poll. Hurry sickness is a very real disease that doctors are now saying and saying, hey, we, we really actually see these symptoms and they're taking a toll on individuals. Do you guys, are you guys curious about how we did as a group? Yeah, I was very curious too, so I pulled all that information together. Out of 264 people in the room that day, about 184 of us took the poll, pulled out our phones. And remember, we used these symptoms, these identifiers, to go, do you have hurry sickness? It was the short checkout line, kind of moving through traffic and making sure that you're not behind a long line in traffic when you come to the red light, restlessness, irritability, emotional numbness, out of order priority, or as we'll talk about today, disordered desires. Out of 184 people, 97% of us identified with hurry sickness. If we're gonna be overachievers, let's really go for it, amen? (laughs) How about it? I hope that from week one to where we are now, you are committed with me to go, okay, I clearly have a problem. I wanna commit to the practices of fixing this part of my life because I want the full life of Jesus. And, And Dallas Willard would finish his statement by saying, we must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our life if we're going to access this life. And so the question comes into play, well, how do we eliminate hurry from our lives? And we've been looking at the last several weeks, practices of Jesus, spiritual disciplines that we see in Jesus's life, both in the messages that he preached and the way in which he lived out his life with his followers. And we looked in week one about slowing down. In week two, we talked about silence and solitude. Last week, Greg talked to us about a rhythm of Sabbath, which I am just studying all the more now. I don't know about you, but I just, I want Sabbath in my regular day-to-day life. And today we're gonna to talk about the practice of simplicity. I warn you, simplicity is the ruthless part of a ruthless elimination, buckle up. <laughs> and so the reason this matters for us is as we look at the life of Jesus, not only did he claim to have a full life, but he modeled a life. Dallas Willard said, if I could, use, if I could describe Jesus in one word, I would say relaxed. Jesus was never in a rush. He was relaxed and he had a massive ministry, and yet he did not allow the needs of other people to rush him or to rush his soul. And so I love how Comer says it. He said that if we want that relaxed life of Jesus, we will have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want the relaxed, unhurried, full life that Jesus offers, it's gonna require us to examine his spiritual practices and implement them into our lives. Now, as we dive into today's message, before we just gear up, I wanna lay before you a couple resources that have helped formulate this, this message that I'm about to deliver to you. Um, three that I just wanna highlight. Number one, I believe it's gonna be Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline. If you've not read this, it's a pretty dense book, but man, it is so, so good. When you go on your next, like. Beach vacation, you have several days to have in uninterrupted mornings or evenings. Just read a chapter a day, and I'm telling you, it'll do something to your soul. Another practical tool that I've been working with is John Mark Comer's teaching podcast, Practicing the Way. They're, they're building out new resources as we speak. Um, he'll have a new podcast called The Rule of Life by the end of this month. I would uh, absolutely have you listening to that while you're driving in your car. And then finally, this is a book that I really enjoy. Uh, Erwin McManus' The Artisan Soul. Erwin is just an artistic writer. Writer and his his art form and his craft, the way he writes is really beautiful. Um, I would recommend these, but they're also on our journey map. These are journey map resources, so you can find them uh, in our resource center by scanning through the journey map. We have a search engine. I found that out this week. You can just actually put the name in, which is awesome. Uh, Hannah's laughing because she explained it to me. I was like, man, we should have a search engine for the journey map. And she's like, well, that's awesome, Tyler, because if you just scroll down the page, you'll find the search. Uh, but, But I'll also say this. As we close out today, if you would take your time to go to the front lobby, on the big screen in the front lobby, there will be a single QR code. That code will actually take you Um, QR uh, code bar, that will actually take you to all the resources that have formulated and shaped the sermons for this series. So all the resources that Greg has referenced or Tom or myself, you can find them all at one-stop shop. It'll take you to Amazon links to buy books, to the podcast, and everything in between. Sound good? All right. When we talk about the practices of simplicity, where we have to begin is we have to talk about our desires as human beings and our limitations, If you're gonna understand the need for a practice like a simple living or simplicity, you'll have to understand limitations and desires. I wanna start with with limitations for a moment. If you'll recall week one, I talked about this principle, truth is reality. I don't know if you remember that or not, but what we're talking about is there are laws, truths in this world, that have nothing to do with the way that you act, your knowledge of them, your indifference to them, that if you violate these realities, you will suffer a consequence because of it. We'll say things like, oh, that person's about to get a dose of reality or that person's about to get a reality check. And what we mean by that is that there are truths that hold up our universe together. I would argue God's design for creation and humanity, but you might be here today and not a Jesus follower, so in a term that we could all agree on is the law of gravity. If you step off a ledge, and you have a great knowledge of gravity. Your knowledge of gravity does not change the truth that if you step off the ledge, you will fall and experience gravity. And you, because you violated the law, you will have the consequence of it. If you don't know anything about it, how many of you have a three-year-old who loves to play by ledges? How about that, you know? I've got a six-year-old, she's still playing games, and she's like, I'm not gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. It doesn't matter if you don't understand how gravity works. If you violate the law of gravity, if you dislike the law, if you disagree with it and you are angered by it, your knowledge, your ignorance of it, or your, you being an enemy to it does not change the reality that if you violate a law like gravity, you will suffer consequences. And our, what we're saying is, is that there are truths like the law of gravity all over. We are discovering these truths as we live out our life, but when we violate these truths, we suffer the consequences. Could it be that the symptoms we have of hurry, sickness, and running on empty are us violating rules about our life and the limitations we have on our lives as human beings? And so what we wanna do is we can go, you can try your best to bend truth to your life, but your preferences and your actions and your way of seeing truth does not change those realities. And so what we have to do is we have to bend our life to those truths, submit to those truths. And here's where the new content comes in. Why on earth wouldn't you bend your life to truth? Because every time you bend your life to truth, it is revealing to you limitation. And we as human beings have a real problem with hearing the word no. Don't we? We don't like no, we like yes. We don't like being told not a step further. We love watching videos that's like, push the boundaries, go past your limitations. We do not like no at all. I remember when Nicole and I, when we first got married, uh, year one, it's been 11 years now, 11 years. How about, us go. I'm just, pro-life guys. I'm just, I'm getting the hang of this thing. Year one of marriage. I didn't say I did, it, it's a practice. It's not perfect, but it's a practice. Year one of our marriage, I remember we're doing pre-marriage counseling, and one of the sessions we had were on our finances. So she took her piggy bank, I took my piggy bank, we cracked those bad boys up, we put the finances together, and we did this incredible resource that I, it's on our journey map, I'd recommend it. Uh, 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 what is the, Dave Ramsey? Financial Peace. I don't, I mean, I recommend it, but I don't really believe in it. Uh, no. I was like, what's that, what's that guy from Tennessee always yelling about money? Yeah, Financial Peace University. So we do that we get the excel doc out and we just it's very simple budgeting is very simple it's uh, you take your income for the month. You take your expenses for the month. And being young and still finishing up school, we got through, okay, we're going to give to the Lord. We're gonna pay our rent. We're gonna pay for our cars. And then when we got to the food item, we could afford like the FO part of food. We couldn't do the whole thing. Just FO. That's about as much as we, because we, we were PO. Uh, we couldn't afford the O-R-O-R. We, so we could, no gas, no electricity, as long as nobody got sick. And as long as the clothes didn't have holes in inappropriate spots, we just ride with them. Uh, we just kept him going. And so that was like the first four or five years of our, of our marriage, just, just absolutely constantly going, o- recognizing the overextending of, oh, we have more bills than money. I say all that to say, while that was a very difficult problem for us to solve, it was a very clear problem. It was easy to see that we were overextended in our finances. We had more bills than means. I wish all of our life was like that. See, my argument for this series is that we are overextended not just in finances. I think we're overextended physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. I think we're operating and running on empty in a bunch of different categories, and the reason that we are operating that way is because we have overextended in those budgets and categories of our life. See, this is the thing. Budgeting is actually not hard. It's very simple. The reason people don't budget is not because it's hard and it's rocket science. The reason you don't budget is because when you budget, it reveals your limitations. In other words, it was abundantly clear, our no was made for us. Would you like to go out to eat? No. Mm, Do I want peanut butter and jelly or would it like a steak dinner? Hmm, no. Of course I wanted that. Of course there were things that I wanted, but because I was overextended, it was clear to me, oh, I can't have that. How many of us are overextended emotionally and we can't have that? We can't meet the needs of other peoples because we ourselves are spent and yet we keep trying to meet their needs anyway. See, our limitations, the running on empty life is an overextended life. And here's the danger. Our culture is selling you continually on overextending Oh, don't! I know they're going on vacation and clearly you don't have the money to go on vacation. Here's $20,000 credit card. Go on that vacation. Oh, you can't lift as much as your bro? Pop some steroids. You can lift as much as your bro. It's fine. Oh, you, got, you, you, you gotta finish those projects. You gotta work. You don't need eight hours of sleep. Hey, take a sleeping pill. It'll put you right out. Oh, you gotta wake up. You don't have time to sleep. Just take a caffeine supplement. It's fine. It'll pick you right up. Our culture sells us on a lifestyle that inevitably leads to running on empty. See, our culture does not teach you how to respect your boundaries. It does not teach you how to say no. In fact, what it teaches you is how to continually say yes and overextend yourself. But you cannot deny there are 24 hours in a day You cannot deny that you need food every day to be sustained. You cannot deny that you need sleep, that there are very real limitations. And if you violate those laws, those truths, those realities, well, then you are setting yourself up for a dose of reality. And our culture is continually pushing us this direction and Jesus is saying, don't do that. Now, In order to talk about desire and further limitations, what I want to do is I want to get back to the design that God has, not just for the world around us. I want to talk today about the design that God has for you and me. If we're going to talk about our own individual lives and how we fix this hurry sickness that is inside of us, we have to not just look at the world and how God made the world and how we're to operate in the world, but how did God make you? How are you wired now we know that, that we're spirit, soul and we have a body, but there are two parts that make us up as human beings. and I want to look at those very quickly. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 26 uh, verse, uh, sorry chapter one, verse 26. Greg spoke about this a little bit last week and he talked about God and creation and resting on the seventh day before he rested on the seventh day though. He made all the things that we see, birds in the sky, fish in the sea, animals on land, the sun, the moon, the stars. He separates the ocean from the sky, and then he separates all of that creation. And he says, all right, we're making something else, something different. And this is what he says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground." Verse 27. So God created mankind in His image, in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. Now, a couple things that we have to note about this text. Number one, When you look at Hebrew literature, number one, you have to know what kind of literature you're reading. The gospels are written kind of like biographies about Jesus. The epistles are letters to the church. Genesis was written by a man named Moses and he wrote it as a poem. Now, in our culture, a common way of writing poetry is that we will rhyme words together because I am not a poet and I do not read poetry on my off time. I'm gonna do basic poetry, the cat and the hat. Silah. In other words, there's a a rhyming of words, but you're taking these two ideas, a cat and a hat, and you're putting them together. Hebrew literature does not rhyme words together, but they rhyme thoughts together. In other words, they'll say, sometimes like in the Psalms, you'll hear the righteous live like this and the wicked live like this. It's two contrasting ideas, but the thought belongs together in one. Don't have one line without the other. Oftentimes, though, poetry will not just compare them, but they will complement one another. In verse 26 and 27, this is a poem, and these two lines cannot be read separately. They are together as one thought. And so we have to understand, okay, what's the first thought in verse 26, and what's the second thought in verse 27? And when we understand that, we understand God's design for humanity. On the one hand, we see that God says, let us make man in our image so that they may rule. There is something in you and me that God made us different from all other creation. He spoke some things into existence, but when he made man, he breathed his breath into our nostrils. In other words, your heart, your desires, they have been made to go on and on and on and on and on. Yes, like the Energizer bunny. It's never going to stop. At the end of this life, it's just the end of this life. You keep going. Why? Because the breath of God is in you, because you were made of eternity. And at the same time, you were made of the dust. He gathered up dust when he formed Adam, before he breathed life into him, which means you are made with limitation of something of a temporary substance. We are made of eternity and we are made of dust. So for a moment, I wanna talk about our eternal material that we are made of, and then I'll talk about the dust. All right. When God made us, he made us unique and separate from all other creatures. And the fact that he breathed his life into us, the breath of his spirit is in us as well. And that's what keeps us, not just, the the death is not the end that we keep going. I like how Erwin McManus though says it in The Artist and Soul, how he separates us from all the other animals in the animal kingdom. He says this, he says like bees make hives and ants make tunnels and worms they can spin silk. Human beings have the ability to build futures. You and I have the ability to dream. And we dream like no other animal on the planet. Think about this, I love how everyone says it in the book. He goes, he goes, think about this. You never, you never see on the Savannah Plains of Africa a lion with a depressed look on his face. And you go, Mr. Lion, what's the matter with you? He goes, Tyler. I was sitting with my my wife the other day and the Cubs went off to school and we're talking about our 10-year plan. And uh, I just thought I'd be further along than this by now. You know, I'm I'm five and that's like 40 in your world. And I I think I need to buy a red Corvette because this is just not what I thought life was gonna be. We have the 401k, we're setting up for retirement. You never see like an antelope looking himself in the mirror giving himself a pep talk to start the morning like, today, Mr. Antelope, you're going to reinvent yourself. You're not going to be the prey, nay, today you're the apex predator. The lion will not chase you, you will stand firm against him, reinvent yourself. What is it in us that has the ability to see a future that is invisible? is not yet here, and yet we live in this present moment, in the material, and we build and operate our lives as if it's so. I can see my future. I can't guarantee it, but I can see it. We have the ability to rule over creation because we are made in the image and likeness of God. Like God dreams a dream for your life. The breath of God that is in you is dreaming a dream, and he calls and invites you to dream with him. That is the eternal substance that is in you but a desire that has an appetite for eternity with no limitations, that's given to human beings with limitations. If we don't acknowledge that, it's running on empty. See, you are not just made of eternal substance, but you and I, we are made of dust. We are made human, and what I wanna note is that Genesis three is when sin enters the world, and we are in Genesis one, which means that the gift God gave you is not just your ability to dream the invisible future, but he also gave you a gift called limits. This is not a curse on you, this is a gift from God. How are limitations a curse? Because he's setting up for you a relationship like a parent and a child. A good parent disciplines those that he loves. A good parent says, you can play here, but do not play in the road. A good father says, here is all that you can have, but that is not for you. You must go to bed at this time. You're not allowed to stay out past this time. See, limitations reveal our need for a heavenly father. Limitations are our way of saying, I trust in you because you provide for me, you protect me, and if you put a limit on my life, it is for my good. God is not taking something from you. He is constantly giving you what you need to have a life that is full. But Genesis three comes in and the lie that has been from the very beginning to here with us today, right here, right now is you don't need God. You know, the reason why Adam and Eve or the serpent says, you know why he doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because he put that limit on you because he knows if you do, you'll be like him you'll have all desire and no limitation. You don't need God. And we've been buying that lie today in this his time in history. You see, God gives us limitations not to take away, but because he loves us and he gave us a desire that has an appetite that cannot be filled except in one source. Only you and I and God himself have been made of this eternal substance. Nothing else in creation has been made of this. So if you take God out of the equation, I don't need you, God. What does an eternal desire and appetite have to to feed on? It's what we see in our world constantly filling our life with more and more, rushing to accomplish more and more and more, consume, consume, consume. But if you spend your life consuming the temporary, if you spend your life consuming the dust, it only makes you more thirsty. This is running on empty. And so God, as I like how John Piper says it, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Ecclesiastes, the the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, very much believed to be Solomon because they refer to him as the preacher, which was the name for Solomon. Ecclesiastes talks about desire without limitations. I love what he writes here. He says this I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Listen to this I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Anything I saw, I took part in because I don't want limits. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. If there's not a phrase that sounds more like running on empty, I don't know what is. Solomon said, I had all the money I could have, I could have all the women, I had every type of house, I had every type of pleasure, there was nothing I denied myself. And after I took part in everything and consumed and consumed and consumed, I took a step back and I surveyed my life in the later years and I realized it was worthless. I was left with a shell of myself. See, if you're here today and you are not a Jesus follower, What I'm explaining to you, it's that nagging feeling in the back of your head that says there's got to be more to life than this. I keep getting promoted, and I keep making more money, and I keep buying bigger houses, and I keep doing the things that I think are going to make me feel better. And I do it, and I enjoy it, and then after I've enjoyed it for a time, it feels like some time passes, and I go, this is not nearly as satisfying as I told myself it would be. Meaningless. For Christian believers, it's those phrases that we say to ourselves of, oh, once the kids get here, then we can. Once I am here, then we can. Once we do this, then we will be chasing, chasing, pursuing, pursuing, never arriving. I like how C.S. Lewis says it plainly. He says, if I find in myself desires in my heart that cannot be satisfied in this world, And the only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. You want to know about reality and about truth? There is an eternal God who breathed his very breath into your lungs, and you will not be satisfied in this life until you surrender those desires to him. And so here's what I find so very intriguing when we look at the world around us and they speak to us about our desires and our limitations, it's world religions like Buddhism and other type of religions that says, you know what? It's clear that desires are evil and you should abandon them. Give away all worldly good. You know what simplicity is? Just give away all of your possessions, just give away all of your goods so that you're never tempted, you never try and consume too much, you never run on empty because you never have any desires. But to abandon your desires is to violate the truth of your divinity, the thing that makes you like God. To turn off that is to turn off your ability to dream, to hope for futures, to believe that there's something better ahead. Why does despair and anxiety and depression exist? It's because people have stopped dreaming a dream and they're filled their time with worry and toil. No, don't abandon. Don't abandon your desires because they were a gift to you. Genesis one, not Genesis three. But it's our culture that says exactly right. Don't abandon your desires, abandon your limitations. But to abandon your limitations is to violate the truth of your humanity, the thing that makes you human, that reminds you you are not God, that reminds you that you need God, that reminds you that you're satisfied most when you are with him, communion. And Jesus, Jesus didn't say abandon desire or abandon your limitations. Jesus said, hey, can I show you a way to live your life of eternity and of dust? Like a yoke balanced on your shoulders, can I show you how to carry both of things so that you don't have to live like a shell of yourself and to embrace full humanity and the full thing that makes you divine? I don't know about you, but do you wanna learn how to live like that? In order to live like that, we talk about the practice of simplicity. All right, so what is simplicity? Simplicity, or what I'm gonna use today, either simplicity or simple living, I'll use that interchangeably. Uh, The monks called it frugality. Um, Culture today, you've probably heard it like minimalism, get rid of anything that you don't need and keep everything that sparks joy. I'm not against against the the term frugality or minimalism. Here's my concern is that I think it focuses us specifically on outward things that we should just have or get rid of, and it doesn't deal with the inward realities. As I said earlier about Richard Foster, I wanna read his quote because he talks about we need both an inward understanding of simple living, and we also need to uh, embrace the outward expression or living. This is what he says in his book. Uh, He has a whole chapter on simplicity, and he says this. I like how how he writes it. He says, the Christian discipline of simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. Both the inward and the outward aspects of simplicity are essential for this reason we deceive ourselves if we believe we can possess an inward reality without its having a profound effect on how we live. As I mentioned James earlier in our time, and then he says this, to attempt to arrange an outward lifestyle of simplicity without the inward reality leads to deadly legalism. And so, I know Richard, Richard Foster's the man, how about it? Uh, this is this, so. This is what we want to look at. It's not that we can't use those terms like minimalism if they're wrong or evil or anything like that. I just think that when we talk about simplicity, it will it will determine our possessions and our money. But it's so much more than that. In other words, we're not just overextended in our finances and our possessions. We're overextended in our emotions, in our mentalities, in our spirituality, in a number of areas in our lives. Our calendars, the things that we commit our lives to. And so, I don't want to just focus on words that might. Uh, corner us into one aspect of simplicity. Today I want to talk about an overarching, what does this simple life look like? Does that make sense? So in order to talk about that life, I want to go into the messages of Jesus, not only about how he lived his life, but how he spoke plainly of how we can embrace a simple life lifestyle. In order to do that, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 6. You guys still with me? All right. Matthew chapter six, this is Jesus's famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it's several chapters long. We're in chapter six, we'll start in verse 19. And I'm gonna just break it apart for us piece by piece and just talk about what Jesus is explaining to us. He says this in verse 19. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I think it's worth noting that about 25% of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks to us about money and possession. So please hear me. Money and possessions is a significant part of simple living. We must have control and mastery over this aspect of our lives. But with this, Jesus is talking more than just earthly possessions, he's teaching us about a principle. He's saying, hey, you can allow your desires to go any direction you want. One of the elements or the symptoms of hurry sickness, if you'll recall, is out of order priorities, or as I'll say it today, disordered desires. He's saying you can allow your desires to do whatever they want, let them rule and run rampant, just go after everything, push past limitations. But can I tell you, the best way that you can push your desires in in the proper direction is to make sure you're investing your desires in your heart, not in things that are temporary and made of dust. Because if you do that, it's not necessarily evil, it just has a significant expiration date. What you are investing in will not last. And so he says the best way to live your life simply is instead of chasing after all those things, like chasing after the wind, the best thing you can do is find out what is God breathing on and invest your time in those things of eternity. Let's keep reading, and he says this is, why? Because where your heart, where your desires, wherever your treasures are, that's where your heart and desires will be. And then he continues, this is fascinating. He starts changing up the language but he's still talking about the exact same subject. He says this in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. Or sorry, if they're healthy, your body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus, we were talking about treasure, I was tracking with you, and then you started talking about eyes. What are you doing? Jesus is talking about the same subject, but this is an idiom that was used, like similar to if we said something uh, along the lines like, oh, outside it's raining cats and dogs. It's fast, it was actually raining earlier, so that's convenient for me. It's, I planned it this way, it's raining cats and dogs. What we mean by that is it's not actually raining dogs and kittens from the heavens. Uh, All the five-year-olds would be amazed by that. They'd be like, yeah! That's not what it means. It means that it's raining very heavy. This idiom in the Jewish culture, the eyes were this idea of a, of a high intentionality of living. So when Jesus talks about your eyes, he's not talking about physical eyes. He's trying to explain, he's going, hey, when your eyes are healthy, in other words, when you have a healthy outlook of your life, when you take a step back to survey your life and all of your toil, when you look at all the different things that make up your life, your agenda, your calendar, your finances, your emotion, your mental health, your spiritual well being when you look at all of those things, if you have healthy eyes, you'll have a healthy and truthful outlook on those things. But not only that, when you have healthy eyes in your life, you are most likely to also have a healthy outlook on the lives of other people as we read about in 1 John, you're able to consider the needs of your brother. It's when you have an unhealthy view of life that you're inward focused. It would be as if they were saying, oh, that girl has an unhealthy eye, she's super vain, she only thinks about herself, she only turns inward to herself. You're operating in darkness. He says, hey, let me explain something to you. The best thing you can do is invest your desires in things that are made of eternity And the best thing that you can do is have a healthy outlook on life because that will be like a lamp for you. It'll help you navigate and see what's most important. It helps you navigate to where you should invest your desires. Make sense? We'll keep reading, it says this in verse 24. This is a big statement, verse 24. Now, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, it is so important for us to recognize that possession and money is not the only thing that Jesus wants us to focus on, but he emphasizes it significantly. It really does matter what we do with our money, with our attention, and with our possessions. And what Jesus is teaching here is he's saying, remember, invest in, eternal, in eternity, remember, have a healthy eye and outlook, not just worrying about your needs, but also consider the needs of your neighbor. And then he goes on and says, and remember, you can only follow one rabbi, one teacher, You cannot follow and call master both God and money because money is blind and it will lie to you. One is pushing you to run on empty and the other one is offering you life, but you cannot claim to follow both of these because they will frustrate one another because they're in two separate kingdoms. You have to determine today a rule of life. Am I going to allow God to be master over all that I have? Or am I going to go, I'm just going to determine it myself. I'm gonna allow culture to determine it. Jesus says, make your decision, but I'm telling you a truth about how reality works. You cannot have two masters and one will lead to your death, stealing from you and destruction. And one will bring you life and life to the full. And then he says something powerful and he connects all those thoughts together with the first word in verse 25. He says, Therefore, therefore, in light of everything we just spoke about, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Pause for just a moment. Isn't it amazing that Jesus connects all of our understanding of our desires, how we handle our money, the master we choose? And he says, if you do this right, it will go well for you. But if you do it wrong, it only leads to worry. Do you have worry in your life? I'm not saying that you're not devoted to Jesus. I'm just simply saying, if you have worry in your life, could it be a sign that in some areas of your life you have two rabbis fighting against each other? Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life, this full life, more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more, much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Do you see the language that he's using there? Going back to Genesis. He was consider the birds, lesser creation, They don't dream like you. They don't store up in barns. They don't don't, uh, provide for the future. They don't build towards the future like you. And yet God, who uh, loves them, but they are lesser creation than humankind, he takes care of them faithfully and diligently, and they've learned to trust in the God of the universe and nature. Now, why won't you do that? Surely those lesser creatures who can trust in me Surely you who are made greater than that, surely you can find this trust. Verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow and they do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, the one who wrote Ecclesiastes too, not even Solomon in his splendor was dressed like one of these. He who chased after all pleasure and had everything that he possibly could, he was not even on his highest day as beautiful as these flowers If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, made of dust, it's temporary, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Where is your trust in your heavenly Father? Verse 31. So once again, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? for the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. You know what separates us from the rest of the world? It's not that we're perfect and they're imperfect because we know that's not true. We make mistakes all the time. It's not because we're on good behavior and they're on bad behavior. The thing that separates us the most is that we were made in the image and likeness of God. And when we submit to his truth and call him master, he teaches us to dream. But if you're not dreaming, your mind goes to worry. And Jesus says, don't worry like the rest of the world who is living in a lie. To worry is to say, I don't need God, to acknowledge that he's not going to faithfully take care of me, to say, I'm in no need of you. That's how the world operates. Don't be like the pagans who are enslaved to their worry. And then he says this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of his own when it comes to simplicity it is not a call to a poverty gospel it's not a call to a socialist gospel where we in other words going hey we're going to give away all of our possessions so there's not too many wealthy among us there's not too many poor among us Jesus himself said there will always be poor among you So Jesus isn't talking about a life when he says, seek first the kingdom of God, give away all your earthly goods, give away any type of thing that you desire. All of that's bad, just seek first the kingdom. That is not seeking first the kingdom. Seeking first the kingdom. If I could give us a definition of simplicity, we'll have to go back in the slides. I know I missed this, but here's our definition of simplicity. Simplicity, it is the practice of ordering your desires as if he were me. Jesus. Simplicity, it is the practice. We don't get this perfectly, why? Because you weren't made a machine who could just be set, turn the knobs, and you'll just keep going, doing it perfectly like a cookie cutter. You're a human being with emotion and feeling and a soul, and you're gonna make mistakes and it's gonna be messy, but a father loves the messiness of his kids. And what we're working on right now is recognizing, hey, I'm not always going to be slowing down I'm not always gonna be able to prevent myself from running on empty, but when I find myself in that place, I repent, I come back to the practices, I find his mercies for me are new every morning, and I hold my life as if Jesus were me, that he has my desires. In other words, if Jesus had your marriage, how would he speak to you, the spouse? If Jesus had your kids, how would he parent them? If Jesus had your finances and your circumstances and your career and your your calendar, how would he hold these things? You wanna know what simplicity is in seeking first the kingdom of God? It's not abandoning all these things. It's holding them and reordering them appropriately as if Jesus were you, as if he were me. And that's what we have to find ourselves doing. I'll come back to the text. Then he says, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble in its own. I'm telling you a truth about reality. Jesus is not saying, oh, don't worry about tomorrow. Whatever happens, happens. Stay in the present moment. Don't worry about retirement. Don't worry about those kind of things. What Jesus is telling us is he's saying you can worry about tomorrow or you can dream in tomorrow, but you cannot do both. If you are going to be made in his image and likeness, what it requires of you is to dream a dream with God and to build into the invisible. You cannot worry about tomorrow and simultaneously dream. And so Jesus is saying, choose one, but you can't have both. It was the Apostle Paul who lived out parts of his ministry, continually beaten and in prison. I wanna read briefly in Philippians chapter four. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He has been beaten, he is chained in a cell, and he is writing a letter to them. If I was beaten and in a cell and I wrote to you, I'd be writing to you about a few things that I need. Hey guys, could you send me a clean shirt? I've got blood on this one. Hey, maybe some ointment to put on my back. They beat me pretty good hey, if you guys could gather around and maybe just collect some bail money, that'd be awesome. This is what Paul writes to the church. He says this, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Paul, you have no need for anything? Really? He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty and I have have learned to know what is in need and to have plenty, I have learned the secret of being content. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living uh, in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. See, the gospel and the life and practice of simplicity is not an invitation to a poverty gospel. You know what devotion looks like? Give away all that you have. Don't think about tomorrow and all the things that you need. Don't worry about, just just abandon all of it because all that stuff is worldly and no good. But it's also not a prosperity gospel. It's not to say, you know what's gonna make you really happy and content, is if you just had a little bit more. You know what proves that God really loves you is what's in your driveway or what's in your bank account. Both of these are false gospels because neither one of them lead to a secret of contentment. Paul says, I have learned, whether I have much or I have little, that contentment, peace, the full life cannot be taken from me. Why? Because I chose not to put my heart and desires on things that are made of dust, of things that can be taken away from me. I find my contentment and my strength and my peace in this life in the one who made me who I am. I have all that I need because my heavenly father will never abandon me. And so I plant my feet in the mud of this earth and all the messiness of this world, and I don't abandon it. I remember that's my humanity. And the Lord gives me this mud to build and to dream and to think about the future and to continually have hope. But I don't get overwhelmed in the mud. Instead, I look into my heavenly Father's eyes into eternity where my help and my hope and my trust comes from. Simplicity. Simplicity is contentment in what you have and clarity on what to do with it. Here's the practice for this week when it comes to simplicity. Here's, here's a couple questions that I want to just lay before you to set up our practice. Young believers will ask the question, uh, Can I have this or can I do this? Or a way of asking it, Is this a sin? or is this okay? Is this good, or is this bad? It's not a bad question. I think it's a very good question. It's asking about your boundaries. I think that's good. I think another question to ask that I find mature believers will often ask is they ask, the things that I have and the things that I do, do I know what those things are doing to me? When you survey your life, your possessions, your money, your home, your calendar, your kids, your spouse, this church, the programs that you're a part of, whether it's here or at other schools or different functions. When you take a survey of all of your toil, when you look at your life, do you realize what those things are doing to you? You are not a victim of your life. Everything that you are doing, it is the total sum of the choices that you are making and you are doing certain things because you believe them to deliver a truth to you, do you know what it is doing to you? Here's two questions to help us as we use them as a lens to look at all the different areas of our life. The one question is to ask, is it violating my limitations and causing me to overextend myself? If there is something in your life, possession, money, time, otherwise, if it is causing you to violate your limitations, you do not have it to give. Ruthlessly eliminate it from your life. And number two, the second question, am I chasing and consuming what will not satisfy? Are you waking up chasing a dream that is not from the Lord, is not what he's calling you to, but you go, but I want it, and I don't wanna be told no. If there's any of that in your life, repent and ruthlessly eliminate it. When you look at your possessions, what I've found is that if you have too much, it can be overwhelming. I find it exhausting to clean the rooms in the house that I own. I don't need another house with bigger rooms because if I can't clean what I have, I probably don't need more. (laughs) More is not bad, but more creates complexity. Complexity requires busyness to get it all done. And if it's too complex for you to handle, get rid of it. Look at your money. Do you find your safety and your security and your provision coming from that master? Or when you think about provision, are you constantly looking at your heavenly father? Change your view and the way you think. Your future, as I said, seek first the kingdom. Your calendar, asking the question, why are we doing this and what is it doing to us? The big one for me in this series, if I can be vulnerable, but I'm gonna lay it before you because I don't think I'm the only one. Your phone and other distractions. Matthew 5, verse 29, Jesus is speaking about this understanding of adultery and lust. And he says, if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has committed adultery. Inward reality. And then he says, "If your eye offends you, you know what you should do? You should gouge it out. If your right hand offends you, you should cut it off. Throw them into hell. Because better for you to lose a member of your body than your entire body and life go to hell." That's Jesus's words, not mine. <laughs> you know what I thought about? I would hate to lose one of my eyes, but if there was a horrific accident and Tyler lost one of his eyes. I would be able to more easily navigate this life with one eye than navigate this life without my phone. Think about that. To have one eye that makes life difficult, but to not have a phone for the rest of your life—no email, no text, no news—that's no, that's, you're a weird guy without a phone. <laughs> eye patch, not so bad. If your phone offends you. Get rid of it. Cast it away. (laughs) Tyler, that is very impractical. I have found in my experience, the more I study the kingdom of God, it is very impractical if you compare it to what our culture says is practical. But if you compare it to where life is found, I found it to be the most practical thing. As I said, simplicity is the ruthless part of elimination. Jesus is saying, if you want the full life, get rid of everything that holds you back from seeking first the kingdom, whatever it is. If it's violating your limitations or if it's consuming like dust, his invitation is follow me and I will teach you the practice of reordering your life and your desires. After 11 years of marriage, I can say that we are still committed, Nicole and I, to the practice of healthy finances and we are certainly better today than we were in year one of our marriage. I have no idea where the Lord is gonna take you with the dreams that he's put on your heart. I have no idea what destination that you'll arrive at, but here's what I can guarantee with certainty. If you choose today to commit yourself to the practices that we've been talking about in this series of slowing your life down, of finding time for silence and solitude and stillness with your heavenly Father, of embracing a rhythm of sabbath of living a life that is simple and as 1st Thessalonians says quiet if you commit to those practices why I don't know where your dreams will take you in terms of a destination wherever you find yourself I guarantee this you will not be running on empty i'm going to invite Nathan to come on up